Hello, this is Mike Biffle, creator of Thomas Was Alone and John Wick Hex, and you're listening to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 35 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, June 7th, 2020. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode, we chat with Tatiana Delgado, founder of Out of Blue Games and director of the upcoming title, Call of the Sea. We'll discuss the vast importance of the Black Lives Matter movement in gaming and upcoming changes in the cloud gaming space. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as we begin this week, I want to offer a quick word of thanks to Jeremy Gritton of Moon Studios for joining me last week to discuss how he, as the story and art director for Ori and the Will of the Wisps, went about crafting the sequel to Ori and the Blind Forest. How they thematically approached bringing an ensemble cast of characters to pass on even more emotion in Ori's latest story, to me, was very insightful and I thank Jeremy for his time. And uh, I thank you, dear listener, for checking it out. It looks like a lot of you really enjoyed it, and I hope you will equally enjoy listening to Tatiana Delgado later on in this episode. As founder of Out of Blue Games, she is able to bring a lot of insight into their upcoming title, Call of the Sea, which was featured in the most recent Inside Xbox alongside Scorn, Chorus, and The Ascent, and it's going to be coming to Xbox Series X. And so it was really great for me to hear about how they went about creating that narrative of a 1930s uh, female explorer, uh, an intelligent character who explores an island and what their inspirations were uh, in crafting that story. And I'll let her reveal a lot of those uh, secrets, but it was just fascinating to see. And a kind of a cool little nugget of info, Tatiana worked long ago on a title called Deadlight which for me was a very important game is when I was at, at that phase of my life, that was the first developer I emailed way back when in Tequila Works and somebody she worked alongside and offered like feedback and thoughts on Tequila Works uh, work in, in Deadlight. That was really fun for me. So that was back in 2012. So to connect, connect those dots in my gaming history was a fun one. Let's now get on to the news, and I think it's fair to say that politics regularly impact the gaming industry in a number of ways, from rating boards to content that's deemed culturally acceptable in certain parts of the world. We'll see games censored in one area of the world and not others based on the history of that country or who might be in political power at that time. Recently, less than a year ago, we even saw PlayStation, Nintendo, and Xbox all draft a document and letter to the Trump administration opposing trade tariffs with China because those costs could have been passed on to gamers in the next gen. So we often look at politics and something that is separate from the gaming verse when in fact it matters quite a bit to uh, how games are made, how games are distributed, how games are published and shown off to gamers, and how much impact they might have on a culture. And there is no exception to that in the current political climate, uh, particularly in the United States, but now reaching far across the world in the Black Lives Matter movement. It's making waves in the entertainment industry and specifically in gaming. Uh, they're felt in a number of ways. And what's interesting is the mixed reception that we're seeing to those reactions that, that major companies are having to the movement. We saw most recently PlayStation 5's reveal was initially scheduled for June 4th, and that would have impacted the Xbox ecosystem, I would argue, rather tremendously as now, they play a back-and-forth game in competition, Microsoft and Sony do, that is, I think, oftentimes uh, accentuated and enhanced by the gaming rhetoric by, of, of us gamers in the, in the echo chambers of Twitter and in message boards and, and social media. The back and forth gets enhanced by that. So for PlayStation to make a conscious decision based on the, the political climates of, of what's going on right now, it is, I think, a powerful statement. I applaud it. I'm very proud of Sony. I'm proud of those who supported it. They delayed it to what we believe to be June 12th. However, I would argue it's going to be moved later again. We saw EA Play. They moved their release date uh, for their announcements from June 11th to the June 18th. We've seen Black Lives Matter screens pop up in Call of Duty, Halo, and other popular online shooters. Rockstar chose to shut down its servers to GTA and Red Dead in honor of George Floyd's passing. And this was one of the ones that, that felt a little odd to me. I'm not quite sure what shutting down the server uh, of your game meant 
in the big scheme of things, but I, I do acknowledge that it offered a period of reflection for those gamers. I wonder, though, if it was felt, and that's that mixed reception that I'm talking about. Some people were outraged by the idea, whereas others offered a lot of support, and I think all of those reactions are healthy for people to have, provided that's not the end-all, be-all point of those reactions. You have to continue processing and acknowledging where, where there's value in changing things and adjusting your daily, but also recognizing when you might be wrong and when you might be right, and working to educate those around you. Additionally, we saw a number of companies, first and third party, state outright that they'd be working harder to eliminate racist rhetoric from their community via names, reports of racist comments, and flagging of toxic users. And again, I talk about this mixed reception. On the one hand, this is absolutely wonderful. Great to see that, that companies are, are finally stepping up to work harder to reduce toxic environments. I know I see a lot of names in multiplayer games that, that really, to me, are not appealing in any way, shape, or form. When it comes to voice chat, I'm often in my own secluded party with a very small group of friends that, that I enjoy gaming with, so I don't often hear that, that 2006 Xbox Live where you unfortunately hear what everybody's going to do to your mother and quotes to your heritage and whatnot. But it's still out there, and so I love to see that companies like 343 and Activision and others are going to be attacking that head-on. On the other hand, and this is again this mixed reception, why wasn't this done sooner? And I think that's the power of protest, the power of movements, in that you are forcing people to recognize that it's great, and we should praise the change that people are having if it's genuine. You should praise that, but also be wary and conscious of whether or not it's a, it's a temporary fix or, or if more can be done, and work to praise those who, who are doing well and working right to fix and adjust themselves, and also acknowledge that it is not a short and temporary thing and it must be ongoing. So, you know, I too was of mixed reception. Like, great, that's so good. Why weren't you doing this sooner? And that's the battle I think a lot of gamers are probably fighting right now. It's like, wait, you've had this power the entire time. Why weren't you doing something? Uh, was it impacting your bottom line? Do you Are you taking advantage of a narrative? Or is this a time where we are all reflecting and working to better ourselves? Uh, and to that end, Microsoft, PlayStation, and a number of companies have also pledged millions of dollars towards various charities and methods of equality, supporting legal injustices, or rather I should say supporting movements to change legal injustices and spotlight the work of people of color and minorities, including educational opportunities for more diverse works in the game creative space. And this is something that I've noticed Microsoft doing in the past few years. Even going back and just doing a bit of research in this past week, it's very clear that they had initiatives for blacks in gaming, Latinx in gaming, LGBTQ, uh, IA in gaming, and these are, are great to see. More must be done to get people in into uh, the gaming verse that come from more diverse places and diverse voices because it is through that that you'll get the most rich narrative gaming experiences and, and I think you'll see more character development uh, of those going through those experiences. It's, it's, a, it's a tough narrative, but I encourage any and all of you to work hard to educate yourselves, not just in the gaming spaces, but also in life, and that's something that we should all continuously work to do, and it's a tough conversation to have. I know I've had a few with my family members that have been difficult, but in working to bring about change, we must all have those micro-movements within our own families, discuss you know how impactful conversations or words or flags might be in various places and, and what it is that they mean to others and what you think they mean may not be what they truly mean. And those are conversations that are difficult but necessary. Uh, I would recommend, if you are interested, there is a wonderful social media aspect to this on Twitter. Uh, follow the, the Twitter handle at BlackGameDev and then the hashtag BlackGameDevs or Dev, and you can plural or singular both bring up a number of results of games made uh, by people of color and spotlighting those voices of those who may not be historically recognized for the amazing work that they have done in the gaming space. And it's important that we as gamers recognize those voices, not just now, but six months from now, a year from now. And do not allow any group of people to go unrepresented uh, when they're making great things for us and for our entertainment. On now to more lighthearted news, job listings for 343 and Microsoft suggest that they are working to build a new Halo experiences beyond that of Halo Infinite, and I find this to be extremely exciting, but also I'm working to temper my expectations here because we really don't know what's next for Halo 
depending upon how Halo Infinite is received. Now, I will remind you that beyond the first-person shooter Halo titles, we've had a number of Halo interactive experiences. Of course, we had the twin-stick shooters Spartan Strike and Spartan Assault. We had the Halo Wars 1 and 2 titles, which I thoroughly enjoyed and put, goodness gracious, over 600 hours into Halo Wars 2. I love that game. We also had Halo Outpost Discovery, which was the traveling museum of Halo that was moving about the country and something I was genuinely hoping to go to uh, this summer in 2020. If I hadn't gone to E3, I was going to try and talk my wife into going to Outpost Discovery, but mm, COVID, so it goes. Now, I don't know what this new experience is. There's a lot of speculation. Is this the resurrection of the ill-fated and canceled Halo MMO? The Halo resurrection of the ill-fated Megablocks title, the third-person exploration game? What exactly this could mean is up for any number of interpretations, but it is encouraging to see that you know, there is a very early stage of production for another Halo title. I do not think this is another Halo Wars title. We know that Halo Wars... 2 was successful. I'm curious to, to know one day how successful. The online community for Halo Wars 2 seems to have died down a bit, and I'd be curious to know if it got a revitalization of anything uh, similar to the way Sea of Thieves did, if it would serve well. But they historically outsource Halo Wars titles, so I don't think it is that. I, for one, am hoping that this is something different. I know several of my friends rather are suggesting that this is a Battle Royale title. I don't know that I buy that. I think this would that would be something that they would incorporate into the framework of Halo Infinite. Uh, what I'm truly hoping is a third-person action game where you, you play as a Spartan, perhaps a character that you're introduced to in Halo Infinite, hopefully a character that people embrace and like, and maybe you're you're traveling along God of War style. That may be kind of cool. Either way, it's nice to see that Halo is continuing to be healthy beyond the world of, of the first-person shooter. And I think a lot of it will depend on uh, Halo Infinite. It's not surprising that we see pre-production starting on games, but Halo Infinite a lot rides on that. Good news for gamers did continue this past week with the announcement that the Xbox 360 and PS3 hit title Kingdoms of Amalur would be making a return to Gamers Joy 6 this August. Kingdoms of Amalur Re-Reckoning announced by THQ Nordic in bringing back one of my most favorite games of that generation. If you are unfamiliar with Kingdoms of Amalur, there are two suggestions I have for you. First, jump on Wikipedia and go down the big old rabbit hole that is this game's development and release. It is a wild story, near Tiger King levels of, of strangeness and how Amalur made its way to the gaming space. But also recognize that there is art from Todd McFarlane and writing from R.A. Salvatore in crafting one of the best narratives and, I would argue, the best gameplay of an action RPG of its time. It is certainly the game that meant a lot to me in bringing me into playing fantasy games, something I hadn't done prior to Amalur. It brought me into the RPG sense of progression, something I wasn't overly familiar with at the time. It was a fantastic game, and best believe the moment the Collector's Edition went on sale, I pre-ordered it. I must get that statue for Amalur. I have a very strong affinity for this franchise. There is an Xbox One X enhanced version that, that tends to go on sale fairly often. Treat yourself to this if you have time this summer, if you're working to fill a backlog or, or find something to play. It is well worth your time. Similarly, there's a lot of people that are like, no, I'm just waiting until August to play that. Uh, and, and I would argue that is a great way to do it. Amalur is a special game in its time. And I really have to say, hats off to THQ Nordic for working hard to bring about a number of franchises that may have been lost to time for any number of reasons. It is because they brought Darksiders 3 out that we got Darksiders Genesis, which is one of my favorite games of 2020, and I'm so appreciative of that. They must be applauded for that, no doubt about it. However, it is time that we sit down with these wonderful people at THQ Nordic and have an intervention with their naming conventions. Kingdoms of Amalur Re-Reckoning? What? Why not just say Remastered? Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning Remastered. What is with it? Darksiders uh, War Mastered Edition? Darksiders Definitive Edition? Red Faction Guerrilla Remastered? Oh, goodness gracious. It is a travesty. Who's naming this stuff? On the other hand, I'm buying this stuff, so really I am equally to blame, but uh, I am excited for this collector's edition to come out. I will pick out a spot on my shelf for the Amalur statue. I'm so excited for anyone that missed out on Amalur to check it out. It is 
it is good news, I think, for gamers to get this game back in hands. And hopefully, maybe this this paves the way for a sequel. But do treat yourself. Go down go down the rabbit hole of Wikipedia and check out this story because it is, it is wild. The state of Rhode Island and taxpayers and Kurt Schilling and it, oof, goodness gracious. What a, what, a, what a ride it is to know the, the Kingdoms of Amalur story. I have on good authority, though, Jason Schreier is uh, including this in his next book. And, uh, ooh, yeah, man, that'll be even cooler. Uh, other good news, Steam, or Sea of Thieves, which was is out on Steam, hit 41,000 concurrent players on just the Steam platform alone. Minecraft Dungeons was the top-selling game on the Nintendo eShop and the Xbox storefront. I'm unfamiliar about how Minecraft Dungeons did on, on uh, PlayStation right now. This is good news, and I would argue a wonderful testament to Microsoft's philosophy in the, the latter stages of this generation and moving into next-gen in having their games available on multiple platforms. It was discussed ad nauseum back when Microsoft said that they would be working on Play Anywhere initiatives and putting their games on Xbox consoles as well as PC. People marked it as the death of the exclusive for Microsoft, wondered why they even needed to have an Xbox. Uh, and I, I think that's a great thing to question. Do you need to have an Xbox? Can you just operate with a PC? Is that worthwhile? And Microsoft seems to think if you play where you want to play, you're going to buy the games and make them money, and, and they're going to serve the gamers just as well. And I think this most recent bit of news is evidence of that. Minecraft Dungeons, a $20 game, a great game that I thoroughly love. If you haven't checked out my review uh, an episode or two back, please do so. It's got a wonderful depth to it. It's also very approachable. And it's, that's evidenced by its success over on Switch. To see it as a top-selling game on Xbox, knowing full well that that game is in Game Pass, is equal testament to the fact that people want to buy and play their games as well as take advantage of a larger player base that Game Pass brings. 10 million-plus subscribers in Game Pass, the game is still the best-selling game on the Xbox Store. This is great news. To see the Sea of Thieves continue to find success on the PC platform in multiple spaces is wonderful. I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful to see Microsoft's initiatives paying off. I'm equally impressed by Sony's recent news that they will be putting a number of their titles onto PC. We knew that was happening, but it was on and off again rumored here and there. We know that more of them are coming, and, and that's, that's wonderful. Why would we condemn any company that can make money to make more games in the future putting their stuff to, and making it more available. The arguments of whether or not you need the platform for it, I think are fantastic. I think there's a justification and a logic to it. Why do I need an Xbox? Well, that's Microsoft's job to sell you an Xbox, but if you can play their games other places and they're willing to sell them to you, do it. Do it where it's most convenient for you to play and where you'll have the most enjoyment. And in that same vein, Game Pass is coming to Samsung TVs. This was pretty cool to see. We knew that Samsung and Microsoft had worked out a deal a while back to get controllers. We saw them be controllers being sold or Xboxes being sold with Samsung. We knew there was a partnership there. Looks like Game Pass is going to be coming to Samsung PCs. Now, how that method is being delivered likely depends upon the xCloud technology, which we've seen piloted in a number of places, and they're working out the kinks to it. But all signs point to you having a Samsung TV and getting to play Game Pass titles via xCloud. Again, all the more exciting. Who wouldn't want that? The idea that you don't need a box, but you can just play? Sweet. I love it. That is the promise of uh, Google Stadia that wasn't delivered upon but the technology is clearly there or almost there. Moving into next gen, this could not be more exciting to me. The idea that Halo Infinite's player base could go up even more or potential player base could go up if you've got a Samsung TV, if you have access to xCloud, if you have Game Pass for PC, if you just want to play on PC, if you have Game Pass on your console, if you buy it on your console, your Xbox One console or your Series X console, that's dope. More players playing great games is good for gamers, and that's an initiative that we continue to see. Shoot, even Sega's getting in on this cloud gaming thing, and they announced their industry-shaking news, uh, which I think was just a translation error, but it, it was cool to see Sega in Japan is launching something called Fog Gaming. That's right, Fog Gaming. They're going to be harnessing the power of local arcades there to stream arcade style games to homes now a lot of de details are iffy on this it's not their answer to cloud gaming but it certainly reads like it i am so curious to see how this plays in japan because this could influence and impact 
streaming technology. This could influence and impact the way games are brought to people because there is an inherent difference between arcade titles and console titles. We've seen that with uh, a number of different games that have come to console platforms and saying it's not true to arcade ports or it is very true. We've seen collections come out and I'm curious to see what Sega does with this. I mean, yeah, they announced a weird Game Game Gear Micro that is too small to play anything on and trying to capitalize on kind of those re, re-releases of consoles. Neat, but what does this fall gaming mean and what could it mean for, for xCloud or for the cloud gaming space? I don't know, but I'm excited by it. Now, of course, as I do each week over on Twitter at InsipidGhost, I reached out asking for your questions for you to write in, emailing me at insipidghost at gmail.com or just messaging me on Twitter. And I got a number of questions from you guys, some of them really difficult to tackle, and I love those. Famous, famous, big shout out to you for that. I do want to tackle a few of these. Let's, Let's see what we got here. Famous Seamus writes in and says, quote, With Microsoft's biggest franchises, Minecraft, Gears, and Halo, speaking out against racism and police brutality, do you think gamers need to step up to combat racism? Do you think gaming can ever grow out of its 12-year-old saying the N-word on Call of Duty reputation? And does, or playing those games where you're a cop like Crackdown or Need for Speed, L.A. Noir, Sleeping Dogs, uh, or someone that helps the police like Spider-Man, Batman, or Sherlock Holmes, does that feel wrong to you after seeing the horrific things that police officers are doing to protesters? End quote. Man, Famous Seamus, I love these questions because they offer me an opportunity to reflect and really think about the way I play games. Uh, So let's try and break this down a piece at a time here. Uh, As far as the big franchises stepping up against police brutality and racism uh, and gamers having a responsibility to combat that racism, the answer is absolutely gamers have a responsibility there. There is no doubt about it that gamers need to do a better job at self-policing themselves and self working through those and, and reflecting on what it is they're, they're offering as interactions. One of the wonderful things about the movements I'm seeing are a number of peaceful protesters are clamping down on anyone that is trying to incite violence of any kind, and they're saying, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that, don't give anyone a reason. I think the part of this is communities needing to work to self-regulate themselves. Similarly, it is very important to, to see companies continue to combat those people who are working specifically to troll and anger others. I will say, with the method that I consume multiplayer games, I do not deal with that kind of 2006 mindset of hearing the N-word and people you know, defacing my mother anymore because I'm in private party chat. I never really go to game chat for games. Uh, so that's that's not something I interact with. I don't know how prominent it is in on firsthand experience, but anecdotally, I hear that it's still quite there. A lot of homophobic words as well being said. I do not operate with that in a public space by any means. So I don't I don't hear it. I just ignore it by way of that. And that is not enough to be sure. There is more that we can be doing. One of the things that I get in playing some games is people will message me and be like, "Ah, oh, you suck," or "You're easy," or "You stay." Like, they'll say a number of things, and I often reply with something polite. You know, hey, good game. Oh, yeah, you got me. Or, oh, that's not very nice. And I'll say that kind of stuff. And and that's one way of doing it. But uh, reporting is another way. Report people's names, for sure, if you see stuff that's disingenuous. And if offered the opportunity, which is difficult to do in a game space, offer a chance for education and talk to people. Have the conversation that's difficult. But, yes, gamers absolutely need to work to, to break out of that mentality. Now, as far as playing games where I'm a cop, does this change the way that that I operate in games where I am a cop or I'm helping police officers. Um, It does not feel wrong to me in playing a game like Spider-Man or Batman to be helping police officers. It does not feel wrong to me to be doing that. I think I'm more conscious than ever of the misuse of power by police entities of any kind. But in Sleeping Dogs, one of my favorite games of all time, part of the narrative is the struggle of doing right and wrong. You get police points and you get gang points, essentially, uh, for doing rights and wrongs. And that moral dilemma, I think, is healthier. I've always struggled with that, but I'm a bit more emotional, I think, than some people who just want the gameplay perk of being a good guy or a bad guy. I'm thinking about, like, what, Knights of the Old Republic or something. I will probably not do much more changing of the way I play because the idea of Crackdown is to be overpowered and stop gangs. Okay, that makes sense. And a lot of those gangs uh, represent a number of different stereotypes, and and same with Streets of Rage and whatnot. But I do understand where this question comes, and I think it's a healthy question to have. I like the question. It's a difficult question, and it requires more reflection. But uh, I don't think it would change my, my gaming habits, per se. 
The next question comes in from the always supportive Edward Barnell at RetroCode on Twitter. Good to see you, Edward. I hope you're doing well, buddy. Uh, he says, don't know if I've asked this before, but do you think ReCore deserves a sequel and who makes it? Do you think it holds up well if people played it now? Man, ReCore is a an interesting conundrum to be sure. It came out before it was ready. If you played ReCore at launch, you got a lesser experience than its re-release of a definitive edition in 2017. I did not play it at launch because it, it did well if i did i didn't like get into it that's for sure but i did play the definitive edition later on of course following the story of jewel adams as she goes through far eden really loved the game if i could be honest with you it was a budget game that was more than the sum of its parts if you go back and play it now guys i think you'll really enjoy it they added it there was clearly stuff that, that was missing in its initial launch they added back in there the concept is very Mega Man-esque you go through, you battle robots, you take their abilities, add them to your own, and it's a 3D exploration open-world platformer. I really dig it. I really liked ReCore a lot. Uh, as a budget game, it is fantastic. I, I loved it. Now, KJ Inafune had a lot of concepts that influenced the game. I liked it a lot. But the problem with ReCore at its launch was that Xbox had no exclusives, and a lot rode on ReCore being an exclusive game. And it speaks to that same problem they had throughout this generation of when you don't have any AAA bangers that, that run alongside Infamous and God of War, Horizon Zero Dawn, Last of Us. If you don't have anything on that level, everything gets compared to that level and a lot of pressure gets put on you to be the savior of a console. And that's not a fair plight to put on most games by any means. And ReCore now is well worth playing, guys. It's a wonderful 3D puzzle-solving battle game that I really enjoyed. But... It is never meant to stand up toe-to-toe -to -toe with Uncharted, and it shouldn't be. It's just not That's not a fair ask. Uh, as far as if somebody should get a, make a sequel to it, I don't know what studio would tackle that problem right now, but I do think that game has more to it. There's more to explore in that world, and if allowed the development time that's worthwhile, absolutely, this game deserves a sequel. I, I went back and looked. I was like, oh, is there a statue for this game? Because I really enjoyed my time, and one of the things I like about statues is are they remind me of how much fun I had with that game and what was going on in my life at that time. I just ordered the God of War statue because I just played through God of War as I worked to fill in any gaps from this generation that I might not have played. And I love, love God of War. That is one of the best games ever created of all time. And I ordered the statue for that. And ReCore, I really dug. Uh, but man, that is not, a, not an easy statue to find. But I really like that game and I hope that somebody makes a sequel and when they do, they give it the time it needs to be made. Last question this week comes in from Hypecaster. Hypecaster, of course, does all the promos. Big thank you to Antonio Guillen for always making the promos and, and doing so much work to keep XEP afloat. Uh, he says, what dormant franchise could be rebooted God of War style and be the sleeper next-gen killer app must play? We get this question a lot, uh, Antonio. The idea of, of what game could be the savior, what game needs to come back, what franchise needs to come back. And a lot of people have been shouting out games like Perfect Dark and Fable needing to, to make a grand return. And I agree, those games need to make a grand return. But Crimson Skies often comes up in my mind as one that needs to make a return. Uh, and as well as Jade Empire, a reimagining of Jade Empire uh, with that God of War approach where you take a beloved character in gameplay style and just turn it on its head and give a lot of development time to it might be something worthwhile. We've seen Ghost of Tsushima uh, looking to explore that Asian genre. I don't know the right way to, to word that. But if Assassin's Creed is choosing to explore Norse mythology, God of War is choosing to explore Norse mythology. Uh, Assassin's Creed formerly did Egypt and Greece so much that I think a lot of the Asian areas, a lot of Korean history could be explored, a lot of Japanese history could continue to be explored, and Chinese history would be well worth approaching with a new light. So maybe Jade Empire would be a worthwhile endeavor there. But again, after having just played God of War myself, any game that gets reimagined and turns a character on its head and makes me love a character that is stagnant or boring or uninteresting initially is well worth the time. There is so much pressure riding upon Halo Infinite to be the savior of this new Xbox era, that it would be lovely to see something else take that moniker. We, I think Hellblade 2 offers a number of wonderful options for a place to take a new narrative and be kind of that big standalone killer app that we all must play. And all signs point to it be, that being it, 
who knows, man? Who knows? Jade Empire, Crimson and Skies are ones that I would love to see come back. And, and But I've talked enough this week. I appreciate so many of you listening to the show, rating the show over on iTunes, or sharing it with whomever you think might enjoy it. Thank you for following along with me. I send you now to the, a wonderful interview with Tatiana Delgado, who uh, donated her time all the way from Spain to talk about Call of the Sea. Uh, I will leave most of the insights to her, but big thank you and shout out to that team at Out of Blue Games, and good luck to them on their production. I know all eyes for me are on Call of the Sea as it releases. Thank you for listening this week, guys. I love you all very much. Have a wonderful week. Take care. Alrighty, we are very fortunate now to welcome Tatiana Delgado, the director of Call of the Sea and founder of Out of Blue Games. Tatiana, welcome to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me here. It's uh, it's very nice to be here to be able to talk about my game. I'm ecstatic to talk about Call of the Sea, and you are joining me all the way from Madrid, Spain. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So you are working with some time zones, and we appreciate you staying up late for us. So thank you there. <laughs> Tell me, uh, before we talk about Call of the Sea, uh, which is going to be Out of the Blue Games' debut title, the first game from you guys, how did Out of the Blue Games come together? Well, I was uh, I have been working for the games industry for 17 years now. And there was a moment in my career that I realized I've lost the... Uh, the passion of making games. So, and I was I, I was at a a workshop, a design workshop. I was uh, conducting, and I was seeing the students with some that energy in their eyes with the games. And I I said, oh, I I've lost that. Uh, I need to because that that's why I was making games. Mm-hmm. And then at that moment, I, I decided that it was the moment to. <laughs> to make my own games mm-hmm. and I was lucky to to have I met a lot very very nice uh, people along these years and together with one one of them is my business partner Manuel Fernandez we've been together working since my first job in year 2000 so <laughs> we met each other for a long time and now we have our own company and we decided to, to make the games we love that is a puzzle and narrative games that is that is brilliant you've been in the game in the industry since 2000 goodness you've had to have worked on some cool titles and, and enjoyed that thus far well i i think i've been more in most of the companies in madrid uh, there are some titles that are more known like i think deadlight for example others are not known they're very small titles but I've been very lucky to have been able to work in many, many pl- different pl- platforms like console games and mobile games, a lot of different consoles like Wii, Nintendo DS, Xbox, uh, I don't know. <laughs> so that, that has given me a lot of experience, even VR games. So I think uh, that flexibility for a game designer, because that's what I I used to do. Mm-hmm. Is a, is a very gives you a very rich background to be able to adapt to the new mechanics. You said Deadlight, the game from Xbox 360's uh, Live Arcade. Yes, <laughs> I loved that game. I emailed the developer way back when how much I loved that game when it came out. That's cool to hear. Very neat. <laughs> well. Thank you. I- out of the Blue Games, of course, debuting with Call of the Sea, it's an adventure title, and the word adventure can mean a lot of things to different gamers. The, the adventure genre is different now. When you, as the designer, think of an adventure game, specifically Call of the Sea, what does that word mean to you? In Call of the Sea, we, I think we have the reference for adventure in mainly two, two things. First, we have as inspiration the classic adventure games like the games we we love that's why we we are making this game now like mist riven all those puzzle games from the old times but mm-hmm. we are like giving it a twist making adding a lot of narrative so mm-hmm. narrative would drive the game instead of the puzzles but we have no action at all and on the other side we want we love the adventure in the sense of the like the Indiana Jones movies, like those feeling those old time adventures. 
Mm -hmm. And that was the spirit we want to put in this game, like exploration of all civilizations and the mystery and, and a secret island and these kind of things. It's a mm -hmm. bit of the spirit we want to put there. That, and that's why we have set the game in the 1930s too, to mm -hmm. try to reflect that part of the, the classic adventures. And we're in the 1930s following our protagonist, Nora, as she searches for her husband's missing expedition. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And we arrive on this island, and you said there's no action, but we're, we're exploring this island with old civilizations. How does that, how do you factor that into a design philosophy? Do you move from one puzzle to the next with the narrative? Yes, we have um, structured the, the game in episodes, because we want to, to customize the experience, the narrative that is so important to us, because we designed against from the emotions of the player in mind. Mm -hmm. And then we craft the environments that have, are very detailed. So it's like a, a scenes uh, that the player has to investigate to discover what happened. So the mm -hmm. puzzles are not just a mean to unlock the next level. It's just part of the of the, this discovery of trying to learn what happened. So we wanted to put the puzzles very uh, very well integrated into the world. And the player is playing, at least from the trailers, it looks like you're, the player is playing in first-person view. Yes. Uh, yes, we, uh, we prefer to, to do that kind of uh, first-person because of the immersion it gives you to, mm -hmm. like, if you feel more into the world in some somehow so we that's why we decided to do that and so you're in first person and you're solving these puzzles but what is that i suppose it's a silly question are you going and you picking up like elements in the in the environment and moving them to create images are you uh, reading different types of text what what type of puzzles are we solving we have a different kind of puzzles most of them rely from uh, exploration so you have to look at your environment to understand how the the things work uh, the, uh, you can have machines from the expedition uh, that you have to fix and you have to figure out how they work you have ancient art artifacts from all that old civilization that you have to figure out what was this building used for what is needed to to do here and um, we don't have inventory that's a thing we de decided not to have, but mm -hmm. you can explore, pick every object, uh, not every object, but the important objects in the environment and examine, examine them and try to find for clues. Also, we have uh, notes and secret maps and things like that. We try to not put too much uh, text because we know it's just sometimes it's boring to read. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I'm the first person that when I have a very long text uh, in Kateboard and I don't read it. So we try to put the information very visual so mm -hmm. it's easier for the player. And I think more or less this is the the puzzles we, we that the players could, could find. Well, we're walking through, I'm, again, I'm going off the trailers and what we've seen of the game so far. And you've crafted a beautiful island with gorgeous waterfalls and a bright art style that uh, has moments in the trailer that look dark and foreboding and almost mystical. Uh, how did you guys go about creating that art style? Yeah, we decided that we wanted uh, to create a place where the players wanted to stay, to expand, spend hours and enjoying the uh, exploration. So that's why we wanted to do very detailed and very beautiful environments. Mm -hmm. And also we wanted to, one of our references for the art style is Firewatch that we absolutely love. Um, you said Firewatch? Decided... Yes. <laughs> With Sissy Jones. Okay, yes. cool. Love that. <laughs> yep. All right. So yes, and um, um, that's why we moved from a realistic uh, style to a more stylized because they we it allow us to express more emotions with the dramatic uh, colors and light and gives a bit a range of putting different uh, things that you cannot do in the re uh, realistic world oh that's that's so cool and did that present any challenges to you guys to to create uh, a juxtaposition or a really bright level or a very dark level, was that difficult or, or enjoyable to create? 
it was difficult, but enjoyable. I think we we love these kind of challenges. And also, there is a belief that making a stylized game is easier than a realistic, but mm -hmm. actually it's the opposite because there, are, there is now a lot of resources for realistic games, mm -hmm. but it's really hard to, because when you make a stylized game, you have to do every asset on your own and adjust it, adjust it to the style. So it takes a, a lot of work, a lot of extra work. Does, okay, so I'm very amateur in my interpretation of this, but when you're making a stylized game versus a realistic game, does the engine matter? Do, when selecting an engine, does that factor in? Mm, I don't think so. I think it mat matters more the art direction that uh, that you have. The, I mean, the art... Uh, department and the people working there understanding the what what is your because there there is a lot of stylized different uh, styles <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> i have to say so knowing what defines your style that's a hard part i think but the engine i think is not making a difference of course we we are using unreal engine mm -hmm. for and it give us we we have a very good environment uh, artist and lightning artist and he's making magic with <laughs> environment so i they think that's a... it the, knowing that someone having someone that knows well the engine is the important thing i mean some of the, it's wild you mentioned they're making magic i feel like that whenever i boot up a game i see magic being made for sure now in <laughs> that that art style like how talk to me about the development time you go you decide to create a 1930s aesthetic adventure puzzle game. When does the art come in? When does the story writing come in? And then the gameplay, which one came first? And what was your uh, order of operations with that? I think it came everything more or less at the same time when we were creating the idea of the game. Mm -hmm. It's sort of, we, we make a lot of decisions at that moment because it's important when you, you take the project and try to sell it to someone to get the mm -hmm. uh, funding. It's important that you know very well what you want to do. And we spend some time at the be very beginning just deciding what we want to do, what we want the game to look, when the setting is, these kind of things. And from, from that, then we start going, uh, as we say, low level. So making details of each of the, of the things. But it was a, a decision at the beginning. <laughs> Many listeners wrote in with questions, and one of them uh, came from Tim Off, and you already sort of answered it when you mentioned Firewatch, but he asked, are there any games, movies, books, or anything that helped inspire the development and story and art design for Call of the Sea? Mm -hmm. So, yes, uh, we have for the art uh, part, <laughs> uh, Firewatch. Also, mm -hmm. we can say a bit, we love the feeling you get in The Witness when you explore the island. Those mm -hmm. very beautiful environments. And gameplay-wise, I think we we can say we have a bit of uh, Mist and Riven, all, all those games, but mm -hmm. the puzzles are not going to be as hardcore as those. Uh, we will tune a bit the, the difficulty to make it a bit more easy. That is very good. Thank you. Thank you. Because <laughs> <laughs> I got stumped on a few of those. <laughs> Yeah, we we usually make a lot of playtesting in a, when we because that's the only way to understand if your difficulty is what you want to. Because sometimes you, as a game designer, you have in your mind that this puzzle is going to be super easy, and then you realize that no one understands it. So mm -hmm. as soon as you can get players to play it, the the more uh, tuned to what you have in mind is going to be. Well, how long have you been working on the game and designing the puzzles? We started pre-production last uh, July. Oh, wow. A quick turnaround. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But we already had a prototype mm -hmm. that we were using for when when we were looking for, for a publisher. Mm -hmm. The pre-production started in July. I think we're mm -hmm. really lucky because the, the team is very senior, so we we are going very fast. I, I'm so happy with that because we we try not to lose time making decisions at at the last moment and changing everything. So we try to make decisions at the beginning of the project and then and move forward with that. Sure. And you said you were searching for a publisher. You guys found that in Raw Fury, correct? 
Yes, correct. <laughs> is, is it difficult to shop for a publisher and find the right fit? Uh, I, I Again, I don't know much about that aspect. Is that a difficult process? Yeah, I think it's difficult. I think we have been very lucky because we are really happy with Raw Fury. Mm -hmm. The way they work is, is super nice. They, they, it's like, I, I like having a family working together. You can see that they want the best for the game and they give us completely all the freedom of all decisions from of the game is in our side. So we are really lucky to have that. But it's difficult because uh, there are so many people with very good ideas and bits in their game. So I, I have to say we have been really lucky. That's cool. That's that's good to hear because you never you never quite know. And, and a lot of times in the gaming industry, it's the bad stories that come out, but not always the good ones. So that's nice to hear. <laughs> Now, uh, Tatiana, we would be remiss if we didn't bring up the voice of Nora, Sissy Jones. We had her on the show a few weeks ago. She's the one that pointed me in the direction pre-Inside Xbox. And, and goodness gracious, what a voice you, you had. What made her appealing to fill the role of Nora searching for her husband? Well, uh, we, we love Firewatch, as you can see. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we, also, we adore the way she brought uh, the character to life with mm -hmm. only her voice because it was a character that you never saw in the game and still you can you know very her very well so we thought that it would be fantastic to have her on the project and when she said that yes that she loves the game it was like amazing we are so lucky to have her on the game well, are we going to be playing as Nora throughout the, the whole game? I saw some levels in which I have webbed hands, it seems. That doesn't seem very Nora human-esque. Well, I don't want to make any spoiler. <laughs> I can tell at this moment. <laughs> okay, fair enough. It was in the trailer. That's why I asked. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> okay. Well, Miss Tatiana, waves were made when you guys showcased the game on the most recent Inside Xbox. Uh, was that an exciting week or moment or build-up for you guys? And how did you end up in that slate? It's, um, it's been amazing for a very small team. We are only 12 people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we were all together watching it through Skype. And it was am amazing finally to be able to show the world. Uh, or game and seeing because you never know when when you saw something you are nervous uh, and seeing it so well received it was it was so good everybody was so so happy I was my hands were even t trembling at that moment yeah we, we are excited it's like an, a boost of energy to finish the game <laughs> It was in, in those moments, and it's maybe it's a boring question, but do you approach Microsoft? Does Raw Fury approach Microsoft? Is it the other way around? Do, does Microsoft come to you guys? Uh, it, it was Raw Fury handling everything, mm -hmm. so they took care. It's good that they help us with that kind of things that we have. We only focus on development, mm -hmm. and that's good because it takes away a lot of things oh, that takes a lot of um at all of on you when you are you have to design the game they brought that opportunity yeah reducing that stress i would imagine helps a lot with with yes. just ease of mind in that inside xbox we saw the game is coming to steam but also xbox one and it's optimized for series x what does that mean for you guys to, to optimize for a, a, a new console coming out is it difficult uh, does smart delivery factor into your development time? Is it, yeah, can you talk to me about that process there? Like, is it expensive? All, all the little, I suppose, boring questions, but that are, I think, very interesting. Yeah, I think without going into much detail, because, you know, we, we cannot tell details yet about the Sure, sure, yeah, yeah, console, of course. It's, uh, as I said, we are lucky to have a very good environment and lighting artist to mm -hmm. a technical artist to be able to optimize uh, because although we have a good engine and it provides a lot of support we need to we want to have as i said very very detailed environments mm -hmm. so you you need a lot of power to move all those triangles and <laughs> and everything and mm -hmm. um, it's been a challenge to because we we want to put everything in and making it work at 4K and 60 FPS, sorry, but we we are managing to have it. So it's it's a, a huge effort, but I think it will be worth it. 
That's exciting. That's exciting. Is it is it scary, I suppose, to be on one platform exclusively in the console space, or does it actually ease your development time to be to not have to worry about multiple boxes? Well, it's it's a bit. Uh, I guess the the less versions you have to make is easier. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, well, I, yeah, I think it's. It's less to worry about. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, let me go back to Call of the Sea specifically here. You chose the 1930s uh, aesthetic to, to set this tale in. You chose a, a female protagonist who's clearly intelligent and capable. Uh, why make those decisions? What drove you towards you know that time period? What drove you towards creating Nora uh, and, and the area being in the South Pacific? Yeah, I think uh, we are, as for the setting, we had also another inspiration we have is the works of H.P. Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. It's a very small inspiration. Uh, this is not a horror game, mm-hmm. but most of his stories happen in the 1920s, 1930s. So that's why we also choose that moment. Mm-hmm. We love the, the idea of bringing Lovecraft to the Pacific Island because it's something that is not... Ma- has not been seen that much, like mm-hmm. a very beautiful, colorful <laughs> place. Um, and about Nora, we wanted to to create a character because another characteristic of her, and also Harry and the rest of the the members of the expedition, mm-hmm. is that uh, all, everybody is uh, over their forties. So we want to tell a story because most of the people on, on our team, uh, we are over our 40s too. Mm-hmm. Is, we realize that not many stories happen when you you reach that age. It's like not, some, it might happen that is your life is like over, not, nothing exciting is going to happen and it's not true, of, of course. Mm-hmm. So we want to, to put a main character that is not only a woman but over her 40s and an exciting adventure that is going to change her life mm-hmm. is going to happen to her. So that's, I think that's behind, the idea behind this game too. I love that. I really love that because it's it was not a time where worldwide women were treated uh, as mm. equally as they are perhaps now. And even then there's work to be done, I'm sure. But uh, mm. I love that, that idea and that time setting there. Well, Tatiana... What is it you want players to look forward to most in Call of the Sea when the game does come out? I want the players to look forward to join Nora on her exploration of the island, learning the mysteries that lies uh, beneath the the secrets and and the civilization, and hope they have a good time and, and enjoy the story that we have prepared for them. Brilliant. And can you ballpark when we might be able to look forward to that, or is that still a secret? We expect to have the game out at the end of this year. Excellent, excellent. Well, Tatiana Delgado, director for Call of the Sea, founder of Out of the Blue Games, thank you for for sharing your insight with us today and for lending your time and sharing about your upcoming game. Uh, Thank you so much uh, for giving me this opportunity over here. Thank you. (laughs) 